Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Wicked Problems, a show about climate tech. The intersection of capital and technology, people and politics that will determine the future shape of the world and whether you'd want to live in it. I'm Richard Dillon. We do not seek to decouple our economy from China's. This would be damaging to both the U.S. and China and destabilizing for the world. But a healthy economic relationship requires American workers and firms to be treated fairly. These are concerns that I hear frequently from U.S. businesses. The physical and economic impacts of climate change are mounting across the globe. That was U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen speaking Friday after two days of meetings with her Chinese counterpart, He Lefeng. Among other topics, Yellen said she raised the vital issue of critical minerals, the key metals for the transition to battery electric vehicles, grid storage, renewables, and so much more that's vital for the energy transition. But not everybody agrees with her. The world that we're going towards is a world of trading blocks. It's basically mm-hmm. groups of countries that function within a pre-agreed set of rules for themselves, right? And whoever doesn't agree with those set of rules, whether it be environmental compliance, human rights compliance, national securities concerns, um, will not be, not necessarily not be allowed to trade, but in a mercantilist model will, be, will bear tariffs or other costs of going and, and competing in that market. That's Gil Michelle Garcia, the co-founder of an American startup called Evolution Energy, which aims to set up the first solar-powered cobalt processing facility in the U.S., cobalt being one of these key critical minerals. It's jarring for people who grew up with a steady diet of talk about free trade in the 90s to hear such things. But I suppose the the older you get and the more you look into the history of energy, the more you realize that energy has always been an exception. The oil embargo in 1973, 50 years ago, largely shaped the energy system that we work and live in now. Now we're trying to change that. But just as 1973 happened for a combination of factors, many of them having nothing to do with the market or free trade, the system that we're about to enter into, the one that we're still shaping, will almost certainly be shaped by factors beyond simple market forces. Cooperation on or competition for those critical minerals is a factor of whether and how quickly the U.S., Europe, China, and the rest of the world 
will move to transition away from fossil fuels to limit global warming. And they're also crucial for a lot of national security applications. So we wanted to talk to someone at the forefront of this issue, putting capital and technology to work to bring those minerals into supply chains while navigating the tricky geopolitics of the whole thing. So we were really pleased that Gil, the co-founder of Evolution Energy, could join us. I'll learn more about Cobalt during this conversation than I ever expected to know. And I think Gil's perspective from that position is very interesting for people who are wondering how this is all going to play out. And it's fair to say, he's a lot less diplomatic, particularly about China, than Secretary Yellen. Here's our conversation. Gil Michelle Garcia of Evolution, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, you're working to establish this plan for cobalt processing in Yuma, Arizona, where you guys are going to be scaling up to produce enough for 1 million batteries servicing the EV sector in the States. Tell us more about the project. Evolution Energy is part of the reindustrialization of the United States in this critical battery sector. So effectively, we're building the first uh, U.S.-based cobalt processing facility to supply not only cobalt uh, sulfate for the EV battery industry, as well as cobalt metal for the U.S. and aerospace industry. And you're building this plant in Yuma, Arizona. It's going to require kind of a substantial amount of investment to get there. So tell us a little bit more about the plan, if you would. Well, Yuma, Arizona, part of the many governmental programs that have been very wisely implemented by the Biden administration uh, relating to the IRA and the Partisan Infrastructure Act have been enormously helpful to basically furthering the rapid development of this industry. Obviously, we're no exception. Um, and one of the things that, that those programs or that reindustrialization effort uh, prefers, it doesn't necessarily require, but it certainly prefers it for it to be green. There are all these concerns about reindustrializing in a, in a green manner, right? So for us, Yuma County, Arizona is the sunniest county in the United States and therefore an ideal place to build a facility that is fully powered by solar panels. So we are a first solar-powered cobalt processing facility in the United States. Okay. Now that sounds very interesting, and it's something that hasn't been done before. Are they excited to have you come? Well, I mean, the whole purpose of building a domestic EV supply chain is to decarbonize the economy and meet net zero carbon goals. And so it makes no sense for us to be building facilities for purposes of decarbonizing this, the industry if we're ourselves not green. And so it, it obviously makes sense if that's the purpose that society is, is going towards EV vehicles uh, for basically green purposes is obviously for the manufacturing facilities to also be green. You're going to be providing cobalt as part of the, the supply chain that feeds into the construction of batteries. First of all, let's, let's take it a step back. Why is cobalt important for that process just on the EV side to start with? Well, cobalt is one of the most heat resistance materials, one of the densest materials on earth. So if you think about uh, an EV battery, which is basically ions going back and forth between the cathode and the anode, each of the side of the battery, one way when it's charging, one way when it's utilizing. And think about the lithium in between as a skating rink and, you know, the, the ions go back and forth. If you have heavy utilization or you're doing a heavy vehicle or doing high usage, well, those ions are going back and forth a lot faster and, and, and more, with more intensity. That inevitably creates friction. Friction creates heat. Heat can then undermine the battery. So, if, you know, think about the Tesla vehicles that were burning up uh, a couple of years ago. That was because they did not have enough cobalt. 
Um, so cobalt in batteries is primarily is for its heat stabilization purposes or heat minimization purposes. In aerospace and defense, it's used for same purposes, but in different applications. So alloy grade cobalt metal is used in cobalt super alloys, which basically mix the properties of one metal against another metal. Primarily, let's say aluminum that has cobalt in it will be a much stronger aluminum that will also be heat resistant. Uh, if you think about anything that gets hot, super hot or has to be super heat resistant, the inside of machine gun barrels, the inside of artillery pieces, the lining, the outside of stealth bombers, reentry vehicles that cross into space, supersonic missiles, the inside turbines of an engine, nuclear facilities that require cooling, all of those materials, all of those parts need to be resistant to super high heat. And cobalt is one of the primary uh, or one of the sole materials that we know currently that we can blend with other metals to create super alloys that, that give us these properties. Right. And so and cobalt a key ingredient for the what, what is the most like, dominant part of high-performance EVs and their batteries in called NMC, correct? Nickel cobalt manganese batteries, right? And they're right. the primary... A type of battery key current usage. The primary driver of the build out of supply chain in terms of its breadth and speed is the pricing of these, these commodities. And so, mm -hmm. what has been happening in the market is China developed a monopoly control position on all of these materials. Um, mm -hmm. and, and therefore, if, if you were to view them from the perspective of monopoly law, they're the current monopolists controlling the market. On, on all of these things, not just cobalt, nickel, manganese, lithium. I mean, all, they're setting the price. And the typical approach of any monopolist when um, subjected to market entrants that challenge their position and that want to eat market share is that they lower the price. And that's what you're seeing now in, in the short term is you're seeing an effort uh, by the monopolist, China, to lower the price to disincentivize entry. Um, and so the effect of that is it slows down the transition because it makes it less economically viable for many of the marginal players uh, that are certainly far away from China's costs to make an economic case for the, their facilities under the current low prices. And how do we find ourselves in this position, right, it, globally? I'm sitting here in the UK, here and in Europe, people are equally concerned about Chinese dominance of parts of the supply chain in critical minerals that are going to fuel the transition, you know, to this low carbon economy. Um, but how do we find ourselves here in the first place where it's not like people didn't see this coming? Well, I, I think that the history of this is primarily our approach to globalization. It's due to globalization. Globalization is due to basically our economic analysis to say that we're going to allocate resources and facilities and trade on the basis of who can produce what most economically and therefore drive prices down and produce mm -hmm. goods the most in the most efficient way, deliver the best goods, most innovative goods at the best price. And so that for, for many years basically captivated everyone's thinking. And China for many years was the cheapest producer of many of these things. It was a natural ordering of your supply chains and the most efficient way of ordering your supply chains to do that and to look at global trade exclusively from an economic rationalization perspective. And I think that until there are two factors that have really caused us to reevaluate economic rationale as the sole driver of trade. Um, mm -hmm. 
I think that there are other factors like national security, reliability, transparency that have increased in, in importance. And, and so if you look at the two major events that have kind of shifted the ground, one certainly was COVID, where, mm -hmm. where everyone realized, and not just in critical minerals, but particularly in critical minerals and in and chips and in other you know, health-related matters, that in times of dislocation of market supply, if you're not able to have your domestic production, there are serious implications for that, and 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 supply chains don't always function, which we always assumed that they would, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's the first that that then behooves many industries that have reliance on some critical parts or critical you know um, supplies to either build up their stocks or build up domestic production to create more uh, you know resilience and, re and and domestic reliance, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first element. Uh, that is driving this. And the second element is that we always assumed that China was going to behave, and in particular Chinese companies were going to behave as rational economic actors. And we minimized or did not see the rise of influence of the communist state to the Chinese communist state influencing or participating or penetrating private companies in their decision-making process. So for example, if Huawei was not a Chinese company and it was the dominant, mm -hmm. you know, the lowest cost, most efficient provider of telecommunications equipment, it would not have allowed the Chinese government to provide, let's say, a backdoor so they can do intercepts and communications for purposes of national security of the Chinese military and the Chinese state. That's not a rational economic decision that Huawei would have made, right? And so when you see companies that are taking steps that are not fully economically rational or in their best interest economically, mm -hmm. the national security concerns and or military concerns of the Chinese state, then you begin to reevaluate whether we ourselves mm -hmm. are making a mistake by only viewing those supply chains in the aspect of, is it the cheapest? Is it the best you know, product or, or service that we can get? Or are there additional concerns that we should be evaluating like national security concerns in coming reliance on these supply chains. I mean, I, I'm old enough to remember, Gil, that uh, I'm, I'm really quite old enough to remember that working in telecommunications in the 90s, where national security was just fading, just starting to fade as being a key consideration. The idea that British Telecom could at one point look like it was going to buy MCI um, and that they had to go through national security clearance to do that deal, then do some sort of JV with AT&T and the idea that the core signaling network of the, the public switch telephone network in the U.S. would be accessible to a foreign company was unthinkable even five, six years before. And, but for the period in between that kind of mid-90s and now, the rules of world trade, as you say, this period of globalization have been pretty clear. People seem to be able to sign up to that. Ricardo's principle that differential comparative advantage could operate and people could be good at get good at doing certain things at a lower price and that benefited everybody. Now, if we are entering a phase where non-economic rational factors wind up becoming an increasing part, how do we know what the new rules are going to be? I mean, how far does this go if everybody, every player is going to act a lot like, say, the French in the 90s and throughout? 
where you've got national champions, you're trying to look after your own thing, you wind up replicating a lot of different parts of infrastructure, costs go up. And if there's an overriding concern about trying to transition the world to technologies that are lower carbon as fast as possible because of these overriding climate concerns, how do you resolve the tension between the climate considerations and these other factors that are about national security versus you know, trying to do things at the lowest cost as quickly as possible in order to address the climate crisis? Well, I mean, there have been efforts for a while to address the climate crisis from a market's perspective. That's the whole idea of carbon credits, right? So that you're, you're allocating costs, the, the external costs created by pollution right, is not borne by the products or by the companies that create that pollution. And you use carbon credits and carbon taxes as a way of imposing that cost on those polluting products or activities so that they reflect not just the cost of producing it, but the, the cost that they induce on society or on the world as a whole. And so that's a, a 100% market approach to, um, to what is otherwise, you know, the graining of the world. Well, mm. that's very difficult to implement across the planet. It may be easier to implement within one country, but then one country is bearing a much higher burden and becoming less competitive mm. uh, than other countries that don't bear that burden. So um, I think that what the world that we're going towards is a world of trading blocks. It's basically mm -hmm. groups of countries that function within a pre-agreed set of rules for themselves, right? And whoever doesn't agree with those set of rules, whether it be environmental compliance, human rights compliance, national securities concerns, um, will not be, not necessarily not be allowed to trade, but in a mercantilist model will, be, will bear tariffs or other costs of going and competing in that market. Do you think that there is a danger of those blocks where we are now scrambling for competition for these kind of critical minerals? Are we simply replicating some of the geopolitical great power competition of the past where for, for the last century, it's all been about who has the, the best strategic advantage to petrochemicals and to oil? We're talking about cobalt, lithium, manganese, nickel, that are having this retaliatory spiral of, you know, putting up barriers to, to try to protect the domestic industry or indeed just to punish other players within the system. Is there a danger that spirals out, spirals out of control? Well, I mean, that's the premise of the EU, right? That's the entire premise of the EU. If we all integrate economically, right, we'll, we will stop having conflicts between Germany and France and other players because we will be economically integrated and we will all lose. They won't be a win in one side and a loss on the other. And so as we go to a mercantilist world rather than a fully globalized world where we don't necessarily have the same level of economic interest and we're decoupling or de-risking from each other, um, obviously the potential of misunderstanding and conflict and competition for the scarce resources gets heightened. Uh, so I think that from my perspective, the only way that we continue to function in that world is in a world in which Chinese companies do really function as companies and are not either owned or influenced and, and don't have state participation or are not making um, you know, irrational economic decisions by allowing the state to further national security interests through those through those companies in a foreign company in a foreign country. So I don't think that you'll you have uh, and until that really happens, until China kind of takes its foot off the pedal, 
that it has on its own companies or its, its control, that's going to be very difficult for us to go back to where we were because we've lost trust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you look at a situation now where, you know, many of the batteries, 35%, 36% of the large batteries, EV, not in the EVs, I'm talking about the industrial size batteries, that the ones mm-hmm. that interconnect with and uh, the, 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 the uh, electric grid, right? Mm-hmm. Or your, your plant and a standalone facility like ours. Um, 35% of, of that is, Chi- is Chinese controlled by CATL. We can't be making decisions exclusively on the basis of are they the cheapest, best functioning batteries, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess taking a step back then in terms of this getting back to COBOL and as part of the, the supply chain for particularly on the electric vehicle side, but for other applications as well, how much more cobalt are we going to need in over the next 20 years than kind of current global supplies? A staggering amount. Um, I think the international agency estimated that we're going to have by 2040 uh, or 2035, something like that, uh, 20x times demand. Right. Uh, and that'll be the same for many of the critical minerals that we're talking about that are going into electric vehicles. I mean, if I just give you sort of a very summary of the cobalt market, so about 40, 50% of the cobalt market um, is the EV battery market. So that's cobalt sulfate, which goes mm-hmm. as part of the components of electric vehicle batteries. Um, and that is growing at around 35% per year. And it's expected to continue to grow at 35% per year. So mm-hmm. that is the largest segment and also the fastest growing segment. And that's therefore the segment that companies like ours, Evolution Energy, is focused on targeting for the United States. Um, the second segment is about 30% of the, of the market is uh, cobalt tetraoxide, which is what goes into mobile batteries. So your laptop, your, your cell phone. Um, that's growing, not, not growing very fast. That's pretty much flat. Um, and, and that market is not really transitioning over to the North America. That's pretty much staying in Asia. Um, Mm -hmm. and then the, the lesser, but more important from a national security perspective is the cobalt metal market. And that is about 10% of the market with the U S being the larger consumer, Mm -hmm. uh, of these cobalt metal and aller grade cobalt metal, then, then become cobalt super alloys and then get used in aerospace and defense. Um, so that's 10% of the market and that's growing at around uh, 10% per year. Um, okay. And so when we look at, let's just say, take a picture of 2026, currently the United States is importing about 10,000 metric tons of cobalt metal. It does not produce any cobalt metal itself. Uh, mm-hmm. It imports all of its cobalt metal uh, currently. Mm-hmm. So we would propose to domestically produce a large chunk of that, you know, 30, 40, 50% of that uh, to produce that domestically for the U.S. aerospace and defense industries. We also want to produce that for the um, U.S. strategic cobalt reserve. Like oil, these commodities now have such a huge impact that it is appropriate for the government and it's necessary for the government for national security purposes and economic uh, reasons to uh, stockpile and create national uh, stockpiles, strategic stockpiles of all of these materials. And if you get an idea, during the Cold War, we had a stockpile of 13,000 metric tons in the United States. It's gone down to something like fluctuated between 300 and 800 lately. Uh, so quite bad, given the wow. fact that we use just in metal, we mm-hmm. 10,000 metric tons a year in the United States. 
But right. when, when you factor in cobalt sulfate, okay, so you get an idea, and, and I'm talking in terms of contained cobalt metal. So cobalt sulfate contains 20% cobalt. Cobalt metal, obviously, is 99.95% cobalt metal, right? Got it. Cobalt sulfate, which is 20% cobalt, if we talk about the amount of cobalt that's contained in it, so contained cobalt terms, mm -hmm. uh, the United States is expected to need about 35,000 metric tons of contained cobalt uh, for cobalt sulfate starting in 2026. And that's growing at 35% a year. Right. Right. So, you, so you just get the, 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 the idea of the size of the market. It's three and a half times the metal market. Now, right now, the United States is not really importing that much cobalt sulfate because mm -hmm. none of the battery facilities that would be building those fat batteries are yet in operation. They've all been announced. As a result of the IRA and the Bipartisan Act, great you know, stimulus for this industry, great job for the Biden industry. And a lot of the you know tax incentives that were given for the federal tax incentives on EVs have really caused an explosion of investment. I think the last I saw, there were $120 billion of announced investment going into the United States for the EV battery sector. So I mean, that's just ginormous. Uh, yeah. and, and that is all coming online around 2026. So just imagine we're going to go from very little to none to wrap up the three and a half times the metal that we're consuming right now. That seems to have been one of the sources of some of the concerns at the UAW and the Automotive Workers Union, that where these jobs in building these batteries and, and actually assembling these batteries are going. And that they're going to places that are in the, in the Deep South, they're places in the Midwest, places that are not necessarily co-located with Detroit. And there's also some concern that there's fewer workers that'll be needed for that. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But I guess this is teeing up a question about, Gil, are you concerned as we move in, we're moving towards an election year in the US as well as here in the UK and lots of other places, there'll be so many elections next year, where a lot of the incentives that you're talking about, if the current Democratic Party control of the White House changes, that most of the leading candidates have said yes. that they want to try to reverse a lot of these incentives. So does that give you any pause or concern about where we might see demand going? Or do you feel like this has got unstoppable momentum heading towards that, that future? Listen, I, I can see them removing some of the incentives for the EV vehicles, right? Some of the consumer incentives. Um, I don't see them reversing the IRA component that and the bipartisan component act that leads to the build out of infrastructure. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you why. I mean, I don't know whether the Biden administration planned this or whether it was strategic or not, but the great majority of this investment is going to red states. Mm. The great majority of the people being employed in these facilities are exactly the disaffected voters that are the MAGA, if you want to refer to them as MAGA voters, which is men of a particular age that don't have university degrees that generally have not been able to get good paying jobs, you know, in their local area for a long time. And the, you know, the average salary, I was taking a look at it, of these jobs in a rural area like ours, just for example, we're building in Yuma County, Arizona. There is literally not very much there. So it's a neat, it's, it's called a, a um, qualified opportunity zone because there's these zones that the government identified for investment right. uh, are economically depressed and that it gives you tax breaks, right? To create jobs and drive investment in those areas. Our average salary, we're looking at 70 to $75,000 a year. Hmm. 
that's that's a middle class income. That is that is the return of the American dream. That that'll let you buy a house. That'll let you put your kids to school. I mean, that's a game changer, and that's occurring in areas of the country that have traditionally very Republican, that traditionally rural. Um, also, we're countering uh, what we are doing and what many other companies are doing are creating a, a domestic supply chain for these critical minerals, which is obviously in the national security interest of the United States. Mm. Uh, so I don't think that I don't see either Republicans or Democrats um, messing with, you know, this hundreds of billions of dollars of announced investment that are going to create really good paying jobs and are helping to reindustrialize the United States. I mean, I, I just think they're great policies that help both sides of the aisle. They're, you know, sort of, I wouldn't say anti-China, but they're, they're allowing us to de-risk our relationship from China. Not mm -hmm. decouple, but de-risk. Um, and they're allowing us to reindustrialize in many uh, sectors that have been devoid of substantial economic activity for a very long time. So I think they're great policies, and I think that the growth of this industry is good for the national security interests of the United States, and it's good for the economic development of the United States. So you're going to be doing the refining at this facility in Yuma, right? Um, but the coal world itself isn't being dug up in the U.S., again, for people who are not au fait with how this works, the cobalt that you'll be refining are going to come from where? The largest source, about 70% of the largest source of cobalt right now is the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa. Um, the other larger source, that's about 70, north of 70-something percent. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, 10% of the world's cobalt comes from Indonesia, from these nickel uh, cobalt mines, primarily nickel uh, mining operations in Indonesia. Um, and that's primarily Chinese owned. Uh, so mm -hmm. most of the cobalt that comes out of uh, Congo, about 50% of it or, or slightly more, is comes from Chinese owned mines. Um, and the Indonesia is growing quite quickly. So it, it would be expected that Indonesia would begin to take a larger and larger percentage of the world's production. Uh, in terms of reserves, the second largest reserves in the world after Congo are actually in Australia. Mm. And so you would expect in Australia having a free trade treaty and being a, a stock ally of the United States and obviously NATO and, and rest of Western countries, one would expect for there to be a lot of development uh, in, in this area in Australia, right? Um, right? We have also a very interesting source of large deposits of cobalt there's smaller deposits in Canada. There's smaller deposits in, 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 in Chile. And just so your audience understands, cobalt is a secondary metal. And so it occurs in conjunction with either nickel or, or copper. It doesn't occur just by itself. So there has to be a copper mine that has cobalt or a nickel mm. mine that has cobalt. Um, and so the only place where it occurs almost by itself in, in, as a primary metal rather than as a secondary metal is in these deposits, in these polymetallic metallic deposits or modules that are found at the bottom of the ocean near the Cook Islands. Right. So there are, and we have been in talks and we're exploring the possibility of sourcing some of these materials uh, from from the Cook Islands. We're based close to the west coast of the United States, so that's a, nat a natural source for us. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of work to be done and, and because they contain manganese and nickel and copper and uh, cobalt as well as substantial amounts of rare earths, we're going to have to approach this as an industry with you know major industry participants looking at this from a consolidated basis with some government assistance. Um, but for our perspective, just us, uh, mm. energy, in the short term, we're going to continue to source most of our cobalt from major, reputable, non-Chinese suppliers in the DRC uh, and probably look at expanding uh, in the short term also to perhaps some sources in Canada, some sources in Chile, and perhaps Australia. And then, one of the things that has come up in discussions around this, and even in the last week, you saw some discussion around this from the African Union, um, is concerns in about how some of this cobalt is extracted um, and that supply chain, particularly in the DRC. Is that something that as you're striking agreements with different suppliers to actually get access to the cobalt sulfate that you're going to bring in, um, how does that figure into your calculations? Well, if you think about the history of many countries that have their, their very mineral resource rich or oil rich, there have been, it's a very spotty record, right? Um, you know, many times the governments haven't used the revenue properly to develop the country. They've just used, let the resources leave um, and not uh, fully benefited. The population has not benefited from the mineral wealth or the oil wealth of those particular nations. And I, I think as, as we look to the industry's conduct uh, in, in now this EV transition and not just cobalt, but other minerals, I think that we have to approach it from both from a responsible sourcing initiative, which means we have to ensure that we're creating the fair work conditions. So no child labor, adequate uh, work conditions for the workers, safety for the workers. Um, and that we're looking at also um, initiatives that help to build up the country. So for, for example, uh, and I know that I, we just had a, a conversation with the U.S. Foreign Affairs Committee. You know, we need to build infrastructure. We need to be seen. The United States needs to be seen as delivering for those countries. So we need to finance infrastructure in those countries. I mean, the same way that, listen, a road helps us to get to market better and helps us to lower the cost of transporting the goods. But it also helps to stimulate economic growth for those countries. So we should be funneling money into roads. We should be funneling money into education. Um, we should be doing a lot of things uh, for these countries so that they can see that they benefit from doing business with us. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that the U.S. State Department is, is moving in the right direction in this perspective, and we need to, um, on a bipartisan matter, invest more in these countries to secure our access, not just to build the mines and, and create you know, low-paying jobs, which has been the Chinese approach, but we mm -hmm. need to take a society whole approach where we're building up these countries for them to be more reliable trading partners with us. Okay. I, I think we've covered a lot of ground, Gil, so far. And I, I guess I just wanted to for the end by asking, just going back to the company itself, in terms of next steps and where the next milestones are, you know, for Evolution Energy and where people can kind of keep an eye on that. So what, what's next for you? Well, we're very much almost finished our pre-development. Um, you know, we've basically got our land. We've got the permit to build on that land. We've got the, you know, the, our, our, all of our work relating to the community and, and the special use permit that allows us to use that land for cobalt processing has, has been obtained. Um, because we're, we're super green, 
I mean, that's this is one of the other facets that people need to understand. This whole revolution is occurring in a very green manner. I mean, we are fully solar powered. We don't have any, uh, we don't use any hydrocarbons to heat our solution. So we have no gas or propane usage. All of our usage is, is electric power generated from solar panels. Um, that generates excess power, which we are selling to the local agricultural community at a cost. So we're getting a lot of brownie points for it. Um, and so we're overproducing electricity. That overproduction of electricity also allows us to offset the carbon footprint of the cobalt that we're getting from the DRC, because inevitably the carbon footprint that's going to come in, it's going to come in from the DRC. It's going to have some carbon footprint. And by overproducing electricity, we're going to be able to offset so that our carbon sulfate or carbon metal will be cobalt, will be, will be basically uh, carbon free or neutral, not zero, right? Um, contrast that. And that's a very good way to, for us to differentiate ourselves from the competition. The stuff coming out of Indonesia, the stuff coming out of China is because they rely primarily for electricity on cold fire plants. Our carbon footprint is, is going to be zero. Their carbon footprint is substantial. Um, and so we're positioning ourselves in the market, not just as IRA compliant, USA based, uh, but also green. And then another thing that is very important is to uh, create the mechanisms for traceability so that we can tell our customers it comes from this line, it came in here, this is the content, then it got produced, it's net zero content, here's the QR code, bag per bag, you can trace every single one of our products. Hmm. And that's how we're going to differentiate ourselves, and I hope we're going to justify the higher price, because if anyone believes that we can do this at the same price as it's being done currently, Obviously, it, it cannot it cannot be done. And so, one of the one of the facets is if we want to create a domestic supply chain, if we want to create a green, responsible supply chain, inevitably we're going to have to pay a little bit more. And and the counter to that is the same thing as what's happening with the UAW. If we're going to pay good wages to our people, well, that's going to drive up our costs. We're not going to cost the same thing. As people that are using slave labor, like in the Chinese using slave labor, you know, from from some of the Uyghurs that they've, you know, they they're using, um, it's not apples to apples, and therefore that pushes the argument for these trading blocks, for this mercantilist approach to trade, where it's to say I need to impose tariffs on you because you do not have the same cost as me, and you're not functioning on the same value system as we are. We pay workers well. We're rebuilding the middle class of the United States. We're developing the countries that we source from, right? And we're worried about the carbon footprint of our products, right? So it can't be that our, my product then is going to compete with yours exclusively on price. We need tariffs. We need protectionist measures or other mechanisms to impose these costs, right, on the products that compete with us. And therefore, to equalize so that customers can make a decision. And I think that inevitably, the UAW agreement, these um, build out of the U.S. will hopefully lead to an approach where, um, you know, we're, we're raising or protecting our industry so that it can grow without having to compete against what the Chinese are doing right now, which is depressing the price to make it more difficult for us. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Is there any, before I let you go, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you wanted to mention for our listeners? No, I, I, th I think it's, it's, it's critically important that, um, that we elicit the support of, of the entire society to understand that this transition is not only necessary 
uh, for national security purposes, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be difficult, but it's it's also necessary for purposes of reaching net zero, and honestly, building a, 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 a more robust, uh, more politically stable, less fragmented society. Because we need to bring back manufacturing into our societies. Manufacturing is what gives us, you know, the well-paying jobs that then give us a stable middle class that then give us more stable politics, right? If if we focus on continuing winner-takes-all income concentration techniques and bi-coastal approach to the world, that's not going to work. It's shown us that it's it leads to unstable politics. It leads to polarization. We need to bring the country back together. We need to incentivize everyone that the economic system works for everyone and delivers results for everyone. I think we'll have to leave it there, Gil. Thank, hope you'll join us again sometime to uh, yeah. you know, check in on your progress, see how things are going. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. My thanks to Gil Garcia of Evolution Energy for joining us. I did go back and look at the prices on the London Metals Exchange after our conversation. Cobalt was trading at $80,000 a ton about a year ago compared to $31,000 U.S. dollars now. So when Gil is talking about price pressures, it's partly talking about that. Thanks for listening. Tell us what you think. Send us an email at info at wickedproblems.uk or leave us a comment at news.wickedproblems.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter where you can get this and other episodes with my co-host Claire Brady delivered right to your inbox. You can also find us on all good podcast apps and you really can help other people find the show by leaving us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. We'll be back on Wednesday for my conversation with serial entrepreneur and journalist Mark Little, who came back for one last job presenting a newscast from the Ireland of 2050. It's a fun conversation, and you don't want to miss it. For now, we'll leave it there on a soggy November Monday here in Britain. Stay well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.